my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Sammy Curry. Sammy is a mindset coach, mindfulness teacher, and entrepreneur. He helps people overcome their anxiety and self-doubt so they can live with relaxation, mental tranquility, and as their authentic selves. Over the last 13 years, he's worked in the startup, corporate, agency, and nonprofit worlds. He founded a social enterprise, conducted and facilitated countless entrepreneurial and personal development workshops, and mentored young professionals in navigating their careers and lifestyles. He's fascinated with philosophy, mindfulness, and neuropsychology, and wishes to share his knowledge with the aim of helping others attain inner balance and peace of mind. He is a certified health and well-being coach and pretty much obsessed with helping people become their true selves. And just, I'm certain that you guys listening are going to want to check him out on social media and on his website. So uh, just ahead of time, I'm sure we're going to mention him at the end of the interview, but uh, just ahead of time, I'll have his Instagram link, his LinkedIn link, and his website link in the show notes. So for those of you that want to check him out, uh, I would encourage you to do so, and the links will be in the show notes. So, Sammy, thank you so much for uh, for talking with me from the other side of the world. Um, Sammy's in Dubai, and uh, he was just telling me how hot it is over there. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty hot here. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dave, for having me. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you for uh, coming on. And um, we're going to talk about really developing resilience, uh, especially in a team atmosphere. And um, just with your, with your credentials and experience, I'm, you know, I'm really looking forward to, to talking with you and diving in, but I, I'd like to start off with where it all began. Um, were you born in Dubai? Is that where you were raised? So, so I, was, uh, I was born in the UK and I was uh, raised in Dubai. Um, I'm uh, ethnically Palestinian and Dubai is home for me. And um, yeah, it was a very interesting experience watching this uh, country grow and uh, develop in the, in the, uh, from the late 80s onwards. I mean, I, I managed to see it grow from a small um, city to a metropo- uh, metropolitan regional and international hub and it's it's a great place to be it's a great uh, city it's a great country great place to live and have a family and i'm excited for what's to to come at what point did you move to dubai with your family 
Um, I think it was, uh, so um, we were living in Kuwait in the 80s and then in the late 80s, 89, we moved to Dubai and just settled there. What were some of your influences that led you to do what you're doing now? For about 13 years, I was in the, like you said, the corporate space, the agency world, nonprofit, um, startup, started my own social enterprise. And a lot of it was in the uh, business development and marketing arena. And during that time, I've, I've always been into personal development. And, you know, it's just one of those things where I think was quite instinctive for me, where it's like, okay, how do I learn how to be a better person, a better brother, a better son, a better colleague, a better man, uh, be more healthy, active, compassionate, all of those things, you know, goal setting, all of that. So um, it, it was, you know, when you talk about influences, it, I find it a bit hard to pinpoint because I'm the kind of guy where I like to learn from everything and, and everyone. And if I were to pinpoint something, I think in my, like right after university, I came across Robin Sharma's book, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. And I think that was kind of my entry into the world of personal development. That, that was in around uh, 2009. And uh, yeah, things got, got interesting. <laughs> Tell me about that. So you read this book and what was it about the book that led to this shift in your mindset? I mean, this book in particular, what I, what I remember is that talks about a few principles, talks about how time is limited and that we have to make the most of our time in a way that is respectable, has integrity, and at the same time, of course, aligned with who you really are. What are your passions? What are your natural inclinations? Something, another principle that still stands out to me till today, he uses the metaphor that the mind is like a garden and that what you put in, the, in your own mind is what comes out. Whatever kind of nourishment or water or soil that you use to nourish the garden of your mind is naturally going to influence how your mind grows and develops. And I think that was really a big tipping point for me where it was like, okay, you know, the way that I think about things, the way that I see myself, the way that I perceive the world around me, the judgments that I make, it's not only a kind of energy that I'm putting out there in the world, but also a certain type of energy that is influencing the quality of my own mind and the quality of the brain itself, which again, is a fascinating topic. You know, the, your programming influences your mindset and your mindset influences your programming your biological programming with respect to the brain and that's something that uh, i think would be very interesting to dive to dive into yeah um and what you're talking about there is is related the the neuroscience uh aspect of our minds is that what you're talking about or yeah yeah totally yeah yeah i mean at the end of the day neuroscience is really just about how the architecture of our brains the hardware of our brains influences our thoughts, our feelings and emotions, and our behavior. At the end of the day, we both have our, our, our biological programming, which is our hardware, and our social programming, which one could consider 
the software, which is the conditioning over the many years from our cultures, our families, our workplaces, our expectations, our hopes, our dreams, all of that mixing up together in a brew, which creates the certain outlooks that we have on life. Again, very high level stuff here. One of the things that you were uh, just saying about, you know, how our, um, how what we take in, you know, our programming leads to our, well, how did you say it? How did you put it? The, the, the software and the hardware and the software is our social conditioning, which are, well, which is a result of the accumulate, uh, which is a result of the experiences that we've accumulated over our life, which influence how we perceive ourselves and how we perceive the world around us, which are as highly connected to our ability to be resilient and connected to our inner balance. Then on the other hand, there is the biological programming, also the hardware, which is essentially how we are born, how the universe created us. It is the biological machinery that keeps us alive and helps us survive, essentially. And, and one of the things that you were saying is like what we take in um, influences our mindset, and our behaviors and our mindset and our behaviors influences what we take in. So yeah. it's that they, they feed off of one another, but both of them really affect our physiology. Yeah. Absolutely, and I'll, I'll give a very simple example. I mean, we all know the taxi drivers in London who drive the black, the black cabs, the black taxis, and they have to go through a very rigorous uh, exam before they can be qualified to drive a London black taxi. And this exam requires a tremendous amount of memorization of all the, the roads, the alleyways, the areas of, of London, which is a huge city. So this is something that each taxi driver has to go through. And in, in one um, MRI uh, scan, which scans the, the brain, they found that an area of the brain known as the hippocampus, which is essentially the memory part of our brain. These drivers hippocampus were tremendously bigger than the average human hippocampus. So that's because they were taking in all this information of just of the world around them. And they knew that this is something that I need to learn and to memorize and to, to understand. So this is just an example of how our experiences and our exposure can affect our physiology, like you said. It wasn't that these individuals already had larger than normal hippocampus. It was their actions and how they worked to memorize and remember all that information. Um, their, their brain adapted to, to that, to be better able to store all that information. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just, just an example of, you know, how we have, our mind has more power than we think. I, I was not aware that that could happen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. And, and I mean, it goes up. sorry, I wasn't aware that that could happen with our brain, um, that it, it parts of it could uh, grow. 
Yeah, so that's that's yeah. pretty cool. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's one example. I mean, it, it's also you know I can give another example, which is also something that very that fascinates me. So in the brain, we all have what's called neural pathways, which are essentially instructions for our brain to do things. So for example, when I reach into my my wallet, so when I reach into my pocket to take out my wallet, there is a neural pathway for that. When I step out of my my house to drive to work, there's also a neural pathway to that for that. Essentially neural pathways for how we behave and how we act. So what has been discovered is that there are actually neural pathways for your thoughts and feelings. So if you are thinking to yourself, well, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a bad husband, I'm not a good husband. There's actually a neural pathway in your brain for that particular thought. And like any neural pathway, when it comes to a behavior or a thought, the more you engage in that same pathway. In other words, the more that you tell yourself that you're a bad husband, the stronger that neural pathway becomes. So that in the future, it's easier to tell yourself, oh, I'm a bad husband. I forgot to buy the milk today. I'm a bad husband. So it's just, again, this is something that, that fascinates me. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of books out there on this. And I, I never really uh, connected the two because they're, you know, the manifestation kind of movement where you, you know, you um, think certain thoughts uh, and, you know, say certain phrases over and over again, or, you know, write down in your journal um, things that you want to manifest in your life, that repetition, essentially you're creating a neural pathway for that line of thinking to be more natural. And maybe it's just a way in which we, we influence our behavior through those repetitions, create those uh, more streamlined neural pathways to experience what it is that we want in our lives. So that's yeah, yeah absolutely, I, absolutely, and I think simply being aware of that is key in adopting any new habit, in creating any sort of change in your life. Is to understand that a lot of the the ways that we think, feel, and behave are more mechanical than we think. They're more reactive than we think, because of this, because of so many years of. Of, of focusing on a particular habit or a particular way of thinking or a particular way of working. A lot of these ways of thinking are deeply ingrained within us and they don't have to be. The brain is malleable. The brain is uh, flexible. It has the characteristic known, that's a characteristic called neuroplasticity. And again, awareness is the first step to any sort of transformation that you wish to do. I'd kind of like to dig into your your philosophical side um because what we're talking about right now kind of um makes me think of this this stoic mindset of all those things that we have control over and all the things that we don't and the reality is is that the only thing that we truly have control over is our mind our thoughts and how we respond to outside influences and 
you know, our body, while we can use our mind to move it, ultimately we don't have a whole lot of control over, I, I mean, our health can deteriorate like that. Um, whether it be by somebody else's influence by crashing their car into us or, you know, uh, an accident, there's, there's plenty of accidents. And, you know, as we age, our health declines, all those, all those things really point to the only thing that we have control over is our mind. And we can grow that and really create an environment for ourselves that we have a much greater uh, ability to influence. And I, I just thought I'd, I'd go philosophical there for a, a second. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, I'm, I'm really into philosophy and of course, uh, in Stoicism in particular. And uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, there are many things that are out of our control in our lives. And the one thing that is always within our control is how we respond to life. We choose our character. We choose the kind of person that we want to be. Essentially, we choose our soul. No matter what, you always have a choice of how you want to respond. And um, of course, that also takes certain types of, you know, that also takes practice. You have to learn how to pause before you, you um, respond to a situation. There's, there's actually a very subtle difference here between react and respond. I mean, we all use it interchangeably and that's, that's totally fine. But if, if you look deeply into it, react is basically our reaction. It's a chemical reaction. So you might say something, Dave, like, oh, Sammy, I don't like your hair. And then I have a chemical reaction within me that's like, okay, either I am um, annoyed or, or like, like nervous, but then that's simply how I'm reacting on the inside. The question comes of, okay, how am I going to respond to Dave? So I'll choose to respond be like, oh, well, whatever. <laughs> well, let me just be clear. I would never say anything negative about your hair. For for all you you guys listening and can't see, his hair is luxurious. Let me tell oh, you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I I'd like to dig in a little bit to that. Uh, you alluded to it earlier. Um, resilience and and really the that aspect of resilience when we're talking about teams. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? And, and yeah, for sure. So, I mean, let's, I think we should start with understanding what is resilience. Now, when people think of resilience, they tend to think of things like, okay, you know, just put up with it and stiff upper lip and I'm going to get through this when that's not entirely the, the big picture, the bigger picture, in my opinion. Resilience is really about maintaining your balance within the chaos. It is maintaining your ability to be mentally and physically and emotionally grounded within the midst of uncertainty and adversity. It's essentially being as still as the eye of the storm 
within the storm. This is resilience. That no matter what life throws at you, you are still able to maintain your composure. You are able to um, not be uh, not be drowned out by your emotions and your your overthinking. It's that inner peace, no matter what surprises come your way. So, so that was something that I found very interesting because I think, well, first of all, I think that all of us are already born with that inner resilience. We are born with what I call an inner fortress that no matter what happens to you in life, you can choose not to be touched. You can choose to turn inward to that place that is, is untouchable. Now, within individuals, I think a huge step in developing your resilience is simply self-acceptance. It is accepting who you are with all your strengths, with all your flaws, quote unquote, and just accepting yourself as you are. And once you accept yourself as you are, you're bulletproof. Nobody can touch you, no matter what happens. And like you said earlier in our conversation, no matter what happens when you face the inevitable challenges that arise, when you face the obstacles that are gonna come your way no matter what, when you have that self-acceptance, you're ready to take it on. Now, whatever happens is like in the outcome, that's a different story. The results and the outcome are a different story. It's, we're talking about how you face the things that come at you in life, whether it's an individual who says words that, you, that upset you, whether it's uh, you did not get the job that you were hoping for or the promotion, or whether the, whether the weather is bad outside. <laughs> no matter what, you are still able to maintain that balance. This is individual resilience. And I think when it comes to team resilience, this is something that's very, I think very interesting for me because at the end of the day, no matter what career or what job you have, you're gonna work with other people. You're gonna work in teams. You're gonna work together. You're gonna collaborate. You're going to come together to achieve some sort of common goal. This is what it means to, to work in a team. And I think that what negatively affects the resilience of any team is naturally the individuals within the team, the individuals and their levels of resilience. And the question that must be asked is, okay, well, why are these individuals or why aren't my teammates, why aren't my colleagues as resilient as I think that they could be? And the short answer is fear. And I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna stop there. Let, let's explore that because I, I feel like um, fear is the, the source of so much inaction. Because if we really look, at, I mean, even just look at ourselves, all those things that maybe we wanted to be or we wanted to achieve, what held us back? And a lot of times it's fear of failure, fear of looking stupid, but ultimately fear of failure. We don't, we don't want to fail. Um, and I, I've talked about this 
and, and actually I wrote about it in my book, it, that history's greatest leaders, every single one of them had experienced some large failure earlier in their life. You know, and whether that failure shaped their actions moving forward or it just allowed them that sense of, I'm a lot tougher than I thought I was. And that gave them courage to keep on pushing beyond what, you know, had they let that earlier failure define them, they would have never put themselves out there again. But what they did do is they picked themselves up, they learned the lesson from that experience, and they moved forward with the knowledge that I'm tough. You know, I can come back from whatever mistakes I make or whatever, um, you know, if I, if I put all my effort into this and it doesn't work out and I just keep on running into a brick wall, do I just give up? and say, oh, I might as well not try at anything for the rest of my life because I'm just always gonna hit this brick wall. No, you, you hit that brick wall and it, if, if that is unconquerable, if that is unconquerable, maybe find a way around it, find a way under it, find another path to achieve the same ends. There's there's always opportunities out there, but if we have that mindset that we're just going to fail every time we try, you know, we're, we're never going to try. But if we have that mindset of, even if I do fail, the lessons that I learned from that experience are going to help me achieve so much more. And I think if we can have that mindset where we're not afraid to fail and even influence those around us with that mindset so that, yeah, I mean, arm yourself with as much knowledge as you can to, to prepare for success, to give yourself the best chances of success. But even if you arm yourself with as much as you know to arm yourself with, there's, there's always those unknowns. And if we find a lot of unknowns in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, there's a, a greater probability of us falling on our face. But we learn valuable lessons from that and we can come back and achieve more. So that fear of failure, we can change that into a, a mindset of let, let's welcome it. If, if, I don't, if I don't fail, I'm not trying hard enough. Absolutely. It's a fear of failure. And I believe that this fear of failure is a result of a couple of things that we were talking about earlier. It's a result of our social programming and the result of our biological programming. The biological program of the brain, it's constantly scanning the environment to make sure that we are able to survive. This is, this is what the brain is meant to do. On the other hand, you have the social programming, which like you said, it's really about 
worrying that, oh, I don't want to be seen as a failure. I don't want to be perceived as a failure. What will my family think of me? What will my friends think of me? What, how am I going to look in front of my colleagues? I'm going to look so silly and stupid. The, this is just one example of some of the things that causes that fear within the individual and therefore affects the performance of the team as a whole. And my approach when I coach uh, clients and when I coach other organizations, it's really about understanding that, okay, this is how we are programmed biologically. This is how we have become conditioned socially. And actually, these, this social conditioning is what's holding you back. And this social conditioning, to a large extent, doesn't really exist in reality. It's simply a result of your own experiences, your own past, your own successes and failures. This is something that in one way or another, we have to work on letting go of. And I think that once each individual realizes that he or she is already whole, he or she is already fulfilled, there is actually not much to worry about because you can accomplish anything. You can increase, you can expand your possibilities by letting go. And this is just one thing that I think anyone has the potential to do. You seem to be pretty knowledgeable. Maybe you've come to some of the same conclusions as me or have some of the same thoughts. Um, so if you go, let's just say back to Taoism and um, Confucianism and uh, Well, and then lead into Buddhism, but all in the same like historical context, well, historical time frame, you have Stoicism developing. Um, these these different Greek philosophies and and I I feel like maybe some ideas had been shared along the spice roads or the trade routes or whatever from the east to the mediterranean but there are those similarities you know would, would you agree with that you know there are definitely theories that knowledge and information has been shared across cultures, across these different cultures. You know, when you look at Western philosophy, it's, a lot of it is Greek, French, British, Eastern philosophy, um, Chinese, Japanese, and uh, Indian, of course. And for sure, there have been theories about certain famous Greek philosophers who have traveled to, to the East and have gotten this knowledge and, and have used it and for their own, for their own philosophy. It, it, I think in a way it's, it's hard to, hard to say, I don't think we'll ever know, but I, I totally get what you're saying that a lot of these philosophies on different sides of the world, they have, they have certain similarities. And I think, as I, I love what you're asking, I think that a lot of it comes down to the intention or the goal of these philosophers. And to understand this, we have to look at what is philosophy. 
philosophy is the love of truth. This is what the word philosophy means. Philo is love, Sophie is truth. So all these individuals who either label themselves as philosophers or not, they have a strong desire to search for the truth. What is the truth? What is truth? Is there one truth? Is there multiple truths? Not going to get into that today, but basically when you follow that path, I believe, of the search for truth, I think there are certain inevitabilities that you arrive at where no matter where you are on the planet, you will come to very similar conclusions. That's what, what, I, what I feel in response to that, that awesome question. I feel it's a very powerful idea that from just our, our physiology alone, but moving into, uh, I don't know, an awakening where we have these great thinkers that, you know, explore our purpose. Why are we here? Th those questions, you know, and I, I feel like in every philosophy, uh, maybe not nihilism, but, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, those that explore that and we're, we're like, okay, what, what is the meaning of life? What, why am I here? What's my purpose to explore that? I, I think that ultimately we all are searching for happiness, like true lasting happiness, a sense of fulfillment. And the purest form, I think, is when you experience that sense of well-being when you help somebody else achieve something, or you teach somebody something that's going to help them improve their life and their existence. And so when you're adding value to somebody else, when you're adding value to your family, to your team, to your community, you can experience that sense of fulfillment and that sense of happiness, um, joy, I get, I don't know. Uh, but I feel like that is really our purpose is to work really hard at adding value to ourselves so that we can be better able to add value to those around us. And if our actions move in that direction where we're working hard to add value to other people, I, I think that you can find so many different ways in doing that and we live up to our purpose. And we can experience that, that meaning to life, I think. I totally agree with you. I think when we feel that we're helping others, when we feel that we're giving back, that not only gives us a sense of purpose, but it also gives us a feeling of peace. It gives us that inner balance that, okay, what I'm doing, the work that I'm doing is worthwhile. Uh, it, it feels good to help another human being. And I personally believe that this is something very innate, it is, it is deeply ingrained within us. It's something that you can't really control. It just comes out 
out naturally that when you help someone, you just instinctively feel good. And I think, again, when we talk about resilience, looking at resilience from the perspective of inner balance and inner peace, no matter what's happening around you, when you, I believe that when you adopt that character of being a giver and giving back and supporting others, that helps you cultivate that resilience. And even whether it's on an individual or a personal level, or even in a professional setting, when you are with a team, when you are supporting your teammates, your colleagues, um, your, your uh, friends within the organization, it, it's, it's a flourishing that can continue to flourish and help others grow. It's really, uh, as they say, it's the gift that keeps on giving. And you're not only helping others, but you're helping yourself simultaneously. And I think part of that compassion and that empathy that you show to your teammates and you show to your colleagues, that develops the, your overall team resilience, that you are ready to face things when, when it gets rough. I feel like you you hit on something right there uh, that we're hardwired. It's that innate sense of like this is, I, I and I think it goes back to you know the the surviving in you know those days when I, I guess in hunting and gathering you know where you you relied on that small uh, community of whether it's your tribe or your family unit, like you're all working together to survive. You, de you depend on one another mm -hmm. and you want to be one of those people that is contributing to the survival of your tribe. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it is, we are, the brain and the body is a survival machine. And it's funny, and I think it's important to remind ourselves of this, is that the bodies, our, the body and the brain that we have today was not built for this 21st century environment. It was built for the Savannah Desert. It was built for the, uh, the, the, the Stone Age. It was built to be alert for any sort of threat. And I think this is also, I'm not in a way criticizing our programming, but we have to understand that this is what is causing a lot of our stress and anxiety is that we are still operating from a place of fear and survival and I need to take care of myself. Again, it's something natural. However, it's important to be aware of this natural programming so that we can better manage ourselves so that we can better understand that, okay, I don't need to get caught up in this overthinking or these destructive emotions. Even if even, even something as simple as saying that, oh wait, this is just my biological programming or that's just my, my, my brain trying to survive. Even applying that, that sort of um, labeling or reframing, even something as simple as that can help you maintain your uh your balance and to help you calm down a bit we're more likely to identify and focus on negative things 
than the positive because of that hardwiring, you know, that when we're in that survival mode, it's important, you know, and I guess in uh, the stone age or, you know, when we're, when we're surviving in caves and things where the person that survives is the one that can identify the threats the quickest and act upon those. And if we're hardwired to find negative things in our environment, that can lead to a, a, a pretty uh, negative mindset and, and worldview. Um, if we're, and, and we tend to, when we do identify those positive things, they don't last. You know, they're a lot more short-lived than the negative. And if we understand where that comes from, we can actually focus our, our mindset to look for the positive because there is a lot of positive out there. And if we can train our brains to identify that, we can have a much more positive outlook and a happier existence, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. And yes, the, the brain is hardwired to look more at the negative than the positive. And that is specifically for survival purposes. Again, the brain is a survival machine. And so it has to be somewhat suspicious and skeptical and look at the, the, the negative side of things so that I know whether I'm going to be attacked or I'm going to be threatened. And again, having that awareness is the first step. And the second step is really cultivating those mental muscles to understand, okay, if I'm having negative thoughts or I'm overthinking, I do have that ability to shift my focus to the positive side of things. Again, if you look closely enough at any situation that happens, you can always find a silver lining. And that is the mental muscle that we're talking about is, is to, when you're continuously shifting away from your um, instinctive impulse to look at the negative side of things, being aware of that allows you to ease your shift to the positive side of things. And the more that you shift to the positive side of things, which there always is a positive side, like if you look close enough, when you shift to that positive side of things, you are strengthening that mental muscle. And then even when things go wrong, or even if things don't turn out the way you wish, you are still, you will have that ability to look at the, the, the lighter side of life. And there, there, are, there is always a beautiful side and a lighter side to life, no matter what happens. And you're, you know, coaching and, and helping entrepreneurs, uh, people in the corporate world um, achieve success and achieve a, a sense of well-being. When, when you're coaching individuals, well, first, let me ask you this. How, how long have you been doing this, coaching people? Um, I've been coaching people for almost uh, two years now, uh, but I've been in the personal development space for 13 years as a, both a total, both as a student and a teacher. So over the past 13 years, 
what have you found to be the most beneficial in helping people shift their mindset? Um, is there a certain tool or a set of tools, certain mindset that has been most successful for your clients, for yourself, for the people that you've worked with? So, I mean, there are plenty of tools out there, but I will talk about one tool, which I find, uh, which I found has been very powerful and we touched upon it, which is the dichotomy of control. And that's, uh, you know, a little exercise from ancient Greece, which talks about understanding what is within your control and what is not within your control at all times. And then shifting to what is within your control and diving into that, putting your energy to what is within your control. I think that's, um, that's a very powerful, very powerful tool. And part of that tool involves understanding that there are many things out of our control and dwelling on the things that are out of our control does not offer a lot of benefits. Of course, you can learn from what is from whatever has happened to you that that is out of your control, whether it's dealing with certain people, whether it's things not going your way on the job or off the job. You can learn from these things, but you don't have to become a slave to them. And that is when the the pain and the suffering, the inner, the, I say the, the mental pain and the inner suffering happens because we are simply dwelling on things that are not within our hands. And I think that is really a first step into um, understanding that we actually do have the power to control how we view things. We have the power to transform our mindset. We have the power to transform our relationship to this life. We don't have to be victims. We can be empowered individuals. It's within our hands. Now, there's um, a question that I ask uh, some of the guests. I've actually been asking this more frequently now, but there seems to be, uh, by the time I'm talking with one of the guests, they tend to be in the third phase of their life. The first phase being, you know, from birth to, you know, leaving home. And then the second phase being that, that time of their life where they either go to college or they begin um, uh, learning a trade. Um, they, they are fending for themselves. They're, they're making mistakes. They're learning from their mistakes. And through that that phase, there's a lot of value added to them. And they find themselves now in a, in a time of their life where they're where they feel they should be. And they're starting to give back and they're adding value to others, utilizing the lessons that they've learned in the earlier phases of their life. Now, of course, you're still going to be learning in that third phase. Um, I think any person out there that wants to continue to add value to other people, they are constantly going to be learning. So maybe at some point I'll 
I'll talk with somebody that's in a fourth phase. I, I don't know. So far, all I've identified is the three phases of the people that I've been interviewing. And I'm curious, if you examine those three phases of your life, can you pick out like the most important lesson that you learned in the first phase, the most important lesson that you learned in the second phase. And then now that the most important less lesson that you've learned in, in this phase of your life. And, you know, how do you, how do you share those lessons with other people? For sure. Uh, again, if I, I mean, if I'm going to divide my life, my, my life into three phases, I, I'll give my own perspective about things. I mean, the first phase of life, you're young. So the first thing that, I mean, I learned instinctively and I, I learned it, you know, looking back is to really enjoy your youth. I think it's really important to have a good um, you know, young life, you know, you're a kid, you're a teenager, you, you have to enjoy it, you have to soak it up. I think that is, that is key. There's, a, there's an amazing quote, I, I believe it was by Frederick Douglass, he said that it's easier to build strong children than to fix broken men. It's easier to build strong children than to fix broken men. And I have a baby daughter, she's almost two years old, and this is a philosophy that I live by with her. So I think it's important for any individual. Again, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky, I'm blessed to have had a, a lovely youth and childhood, my family, my health. For those of us who have not been so fortunate, I think, again, maybe if you look at certain things that happened in your life, you can see that you were, you were lucky, you can see how you benefited, you can see that these were beautiful moments as well. So I think the first, the, what I've learned to answer your question from the first phase is really to appreciate your youth and childhood. Second phase of life is, is work and career. And the lesson that I've learned is duty, that we all have responsibilities, whether we like it or not, even if it's the most simple responsibility of putting food on the table, the simple responsibility of making sure that you have money coming in so you can sustain yourself and have a roof over your head that also that responsibility and that duty, I believe also expands to other areas of your life, which is, uh, this is my, my personal belief, just supporting your family, helping your family, caring, loving others, because we all look for that love. And after that, it expands to friends and colleagues that we have duties towards them as well. So I'd say this, the second, I'd say that the lesson I learned from the second phase is duty. The third phase, which I think is where I am now, funny you mention, again, within my own mind, <laughs> it's really about returning to your true self. Returning to the original self. We all, each one of us is unique. We all are born with certain inclinations we are born with passions and certain things within us that are innate <laughs> using that word again whether it's on the business side the science side the arts giving back helping others 
We are all born with these things and they cannot be denied. They cannot be suppressed. And if you try to suppress them in one way or another, they're just going to backfire. Yes, we have a light side and we have a dark side. And a lot of that involves uh, integration, integrating, basically making the most out of your dark side, whatever that is, whether it's uh, attention seeking, envy, laziness, make the most of it, channel it into a way that is productive, practical and healthy, and you'll be just fine. So returning to your true self, embracing those things that you were born with, and of course, some things that you've learned uh, during your life, just embracing that. And when you live in alignment with your true nature, you surf through life, my friend. I've asked that question of a lot of people and I always get some really good responses. You know, it's, it's, it's cool. I really like that I happened upon that line of questioning. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you mentioned your daughter. When she is about to go off, and go to university or, you know, begin that second phase of her life. What tools do you hope that you've armed her with before she leaves the shelter and protection of you? I mean, I would offer the, when it comes to my, my daughter, I would offer the perspectives that are really about being yourself and embracing your natural self, whatever it is, embrace your weirdness, embrace your kookiness, embrace your goofiness, whatever it is, because that's something that you're, that's not gonna go away. <laughs> so don't try to fight it, just embrace it. And um, I also think it's important to just do what you enjoy doing within the education sphere and eventually within the career sphere. I think those are the perspectives that I really want to channel and what I, what I offer her. Because again, when you're living in alignment with who you really are, your worries, I believe, drop dramatically because you're living according to your own values. You're living according to what you believe is right for you and healthy for you. I think that's that's essential. I have a 15-year-old daughter and um it's the best, man. I Yeah. <laughs> totally. Sammy, I really really appreciate you having this conversation with me. It, I mean, it's really really good. I mean, the, I I I love that you shared so much with me and, and the audience. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you feel is important to share uh, with them before we go? No, I think we touched on a lot of important points, which is really understanding yourself, being aware of yourself, and then being yourself. Know yourself and be yourself. Know yourself to understand your, you know, understand your mind, understand your brain, understand your body, understand what it is that you are naturally drawn to and then embrace that. Embrace that and understand that a lot of the things that we worry about or stress about are not, are not always helpful and not always, <laughs> um, not really there. They're just 
We just tend to worry about things. So when you understand your brain and you understand that it's really a thinking and feeling machine, it allows you to step back a bit and be like, okay, I don't want to get caught up in that stuff. I have my own goals in life. I have my own passions. I have the things that I want to achieve. Really just, just, just put your energy into that in a way that is virtuous, that is respectable, in a way that where you respect yourself and you respect others. And I think that will help make things a lot easier. You said something that uh, I've explored this with a couple of other people and maybe you can add more to, to that particular line of thinking, but you said, know yourself. Yeah. And what, what I think is awesome uh, is that that was engraved at the top of the, uh, one of the main columns, um, I think it was the portico or, I think it, it, but it's, I think the, it was uh, in the story of Socrates. <laughs> it, it's engraved on one of the main columns. So I think there's like 68 maxims, something like that, uh, that were engraved on these columns uh, at the, uh, the temple of the Oracle at Delphi. And the very first one, the main one, the most important one, says, know thyself. This goes back to ancient Greece. I mean, and it goes back to Taoism, knowing what is in with, what is within you, who you are at the core. And I'm curious if you've found an easy way to really discover that for yourself and and you know be something that you can hold on to and cling to because like i'm sure you've experienced this the, your peers and people in your community it it's natural i think for us to if we're asked you know who are you we we say what we do yeah but that's not who we are. No. And um, I think that if you wanted to know who you really are, you can ask yourself a very simple question, which is, what am I naturally drawn to without my parents' or friends' interference? Who was I when I was a child? I think those questions, when you ask that, to yourself, I think that can give you a, a guide. This has been a great conversation. I, I hope you enjoyed it. And, yeah. and for all you listening out there, I, I hope you enjoyed this. Um, so for, for those that want to connect with you, I'm going to have your links, but just uh, uh, for those listening, what, what's the best way to connect with you? For sure, you can reach out to me through my website, mindresiliencetraining.com or through Instagram, my handle at mind.resilience.training. Happy to have a chat. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sammy. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform 
and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.